This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, welcome to the kickoff of our Spring Design at Large series in our new beautiful state-of-the-art design and innovation building. And right next to the trolley, so thank you, Hassan and Sandag, for building this beautiful trolley uh, that makes us connect with the region and accessible. Um, I'm Mai Nguyen, the director of the Design Lab, and Design at Large is Design Lab's signature uh, public event, but it's also a class, so you'll see all these students in here who get to actually hear some wonderful speakers uh, this, this quarter. Um, and this spring, the design, at La- the, the design Lab is collaborating with California 100, Karthik Ramakrishnan, the executive director, is here with me, to bring prominent policymakers, academics, and pre- practitioners, um, and with their expertise in designing California's policy future. Um, I want to talk a little bit about what it means to bring design and design thinking uh, into policymaking, because I think we're all very familiar with traditional policymaking, right? Traditional policymaking typically looks at best practices, it looks to the past to help us uh, come up with policies, and it usually focuses on archetypes, right, as the standard for what we should be doing. And design thinking allows us to think about, well, not just best practices, but what are next practices, right? What's, what's, what can we do? What can we possibly think could be possible in the future? And it is forward thinking, right? It's about, you know, what could be. And it also allows us to prototype. And I know uh, policymakers often call it piloting, right? Piloting an idea. But in design, we call it prototyping because it allows you to be creative and playful. It allows you to also fail, try things out on a small scale, try things out rapidly, rapidly prototype. And if you fail, then you iterate and you try again. And then once you find success, then you scale it up in order to have impact. Right, So um, we're going to talk about design policy, using design to shape policy in this class, in this quarter, and also today. So um, I just wanted to frame that a little bit to let you know that, you know, since we are the design lab, we have to infuse design thinking into policymaking. So I'm going to turn it over to Karthik. Thank you, Mai, um, for that great introduction. Uh, to the work ahead, and, and really it's, it's our honor to be able to partner with you. And what we're doing here is not only ha- we have the strategic partnership between um, the Design Lab and California 100, but to think about design policy, as, as my um, framed it up right now, and long-term futures thinking. And this is something, uh, I, I think seeing the meeting of these two worlds is really exciting, um, you, you, you might think when you think about long-term futures, of course, design would be an integral part of it. Um, but it's not always so. In fact, I would say we just had our first set of policy reports that came out uh, that are heavier on the policy side than on the imagination and design side. Uh, but we still have another year and a half left in terms of what we're uh, going to do and really excited about this as a catalytic partnership. Uh, that will launch us into different types of activities um, in the months and year and a half ahead. 
I'll just say a little bit about um, California 100. As the uh, number 100 might suggest, um, we're talking about California's next century. As someone who is a public policy professor um, who has a background in demographics, I've done some forecasting, we're not talking about forecasting for the next 100 years or predicting the next 100 years. That would be a fool's errand to do. Even three years ago, if you predicted what transportation might be like, very few people would have thought about a pandemic, right? A once in a century pandemic and what that would have meant for work, for travel, um, and for so much more. Very few people, even five months ago, would have predicted that we'd be seeing a war in Europe, the likes of which we have not seen for decades. But this is part of what we try to do with futures thinking and future scenarios. Just a couple of weeks ago, we released a first set of reports on California's infrastructure future, and transportation is one of those reports. I mean, how perfect is it that we, you know, we're sitting next to, I mean, in some ways you could say this is not necessarily the future of transportation with, um, with, the, with uh, you know, people mover, the trolley system that's, that's come up here. But this, unfortunately, in the U.S., is, seems futuristic. Um, there are many other parts uh, of the world that are much farther ahead than we are in terms of innovating on things like mass transit, um, where, whereas, I mean, especially in Southern California, uh, we still seem wedded to the car. And that's one of the uh, key dimensions, uh, if, you, if you have a chance to look at the report. Uh, we worked with our research partners. So this was UCLA Institute of Transportation Studies, uh, Brian Taylor is the director, as well as several colleagues uh, who contributed to the report. And they did something that they have not done before. I mean, they're known throughout the state of California and in the country to be you know, among the foremost experts when it comes to uh, transportation planning research. But what our work pushed them to do is to think deeply about long-term scenarios and the kinds of dimensions that might make a difference in terms of creating different worlds, if you will, for the future of California. Now, this is not a world in which drones are flying amok uh, and we have you know, personal air taxis. So that is not, we didn't go that far into the future. But the two dimensions that were critical to produce these four worlds were one, whether or not policies favor multimodal transport or private vehicles, private passenger vehicles, the way we, we have it today. And then the other dimension related to land use, whether land use uh, in, in California at a regional level will privilege high density or low density. Now, with that two by two, you get four different scenarios. In the top right scenario, at least for certain people, they might consider it to be their ideal future of California, where you have high density land use and policies that favor multimodal transport. There are a lot of benefits for that, but it's also very challenging to get to that scenario. And it does have its set of constraints. If you go to the other extreme, you have policies favoring low-density land use and policies favoring private cars. Now, you might say that is the kind of California, of the free and open roads and, and suburbs where people can live in their single-family residences. But that is a California that's less and less sustainable um, as we move forward. But how do we get to the present of where we are, which seems to be in that quadrant, to a future maybe 
not necessarily in that top right quadrant, but that has a mix of all of those. That is the challenge ahead. The researchers have laid out potential ways to get there. And also, how can we advance some core values that we all care about? So I'll just close with this. We have two of our commissioners here who um, will be uh, making remarks, and they, they have their own personal and professional expertise when it comes to transportation systems. But what we are trying to do when we build this vision and strategy for the future of California, we have a set of reports coming out this year. Um, if you look at our um, website, you, in each roadmap and summary, you'll look at the things we're doing to engage young people. So college campuses, we have a college campus engagement strategy. Uh, we have a youth page that just got put up. If you're interested in signing up to be a California 100 campus fellow, uh, we're going to have that application out very soon. We're going to have a deliberative democracy exercise. We're going to have many ways of trying to get people's ideas about how do we build a better future for California and how do we, how do we build that vision and how do we get there. And our commission will be charged to take all of that information, do additional research, create one version of a consensus vision and roadmap, and really encourage as many people to be on that same journey with us. And all the while uphold core values. And these core values are innovation, resilience, inclusion, sustainability, and equity. It spells I-RISE. I'm a fan of acronyms, as you might discover about me. Um, but how do we do that? And these are things that are not partisan values. These are things that are pretty fundamental. People may disagree on the approaches that it takes to uphold these values, uh, but hopefully we can all be in this journey together. So 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 happy to be able to kick off this kind of a series um, with you, my, and on transportation, which is one of our first areas. Great. Thanks, Karthik. I'm going to get to turn to our panelists now, and you get to hear them. So please help me in welcoming our esteemed panelists, Hassan Akrata, Lisa Mudo, Andrea Vidori, and Larry Frank. This is really an all-star panel um, and who have long and deep expertise in transportation planning, policy, and practice. And uh, I get the fun job of asking them some questions. So I'm going to start with Hassan, uh, one of our most preeminent transportation planning experts in the nation and the chief executive officer of SANDAG, a regional organization that has really proven to be innovative in thinking about transportation research, planning, and public policy. Um, Hassan, California's transportation plan uh, 2050 has goals to reduce automobile and truck travel, increase the use of alternative modes, including walking, biking, and transit, and reduce air pollution while also promoting economic growth. How do we modernize our transportation infrastructure so that we can meet these goals? Thank you. My simple question for you guys to go... Uh... It's glad to be here. I'm the CEO of Sandag. If you don't know what Sandag is, we provided you, we built for you that red line that comes right here. Last November, actually, 10,000 of Sandagans were celebrating across the street. Um, at Sandag, uh, we're about the future. You know, how, how do you plan for a region like San Diego with 3.3 million people? And knowing that we all developed in California, especially in Southern California, around the car, right? 
So we can't just bulldoze the freeways and start over. We have to do something uh, and do it quickly because we're running out of time to deal with all the ills of urbanism, you know, congestion, uh, homelessness, housing, um, all kinds of things. So we have to do something. So at Sandag, we try to answer the question that Mike just asked. Last November, last December, our board adopted what we call the five big moves. It is a vision for this region by 2050. What does that vision entail? Yes, most of us will continue to drive. But most of us will have a choice not to drive that we don't have today. Right now, we really have one choice, except for the transit dependent, which is 70% of our transit riders, we have no choice but to drive. So our job for the future is to provide that choice. I know I only have three minutes, so I'm gonna be quick. We need to provide the multimodal solution that Carthrick started with and that include land use and urban form, because without that, you're not going to change transportation. This morning, if you read the news in San Diego, we announced that we're going to build the largest uh, central mobility hub, Western United States, in downtown San Diego, and connect with underground system to the airport. Right? When you travel in Europe, the Far East, almost in, in most U.S. major cities now, you have rail go to the airport. In San Diego, we do not. We need to. You ask, will people use it? Well, some will. But not having that choice is, is, is really, I, I consider it not good policy for California. Uh, we're also investing heavy on our border infrastructure because we have the largest trading partner with Mexico. We're going to move the, the corridor that Andrea used to come here on the train because right now one and a half mile of it is on the beach that could actually give away and be swimming in the ocean. You ask how will, how will we do and modernize the system and do this major infrastructure project that's take a lot of time, a lot of money with the political system we have. And I would say um, Warren Buffett once said someone is sitting under the shade of a tree because someone else decided to plant it a long time ago. We need to plant that infrastructure to modernize our transportation system in spite of the political system. I can tell you, I work for a board, and half of them would love to fire me, and the other half are thinking about it. <laughs> and so I'm doing really good. But I'm at the stage in my career where I don't really care. I want to do the right thing, and, and with your help and with the help of the commission, we're going to do the right thing. Back to you, Mike. Thank you. Well, you're still around, so I think 51% still like you. <laughs> Next, I'm going to turn to Andrea, a co-founder and policy lead for the People's Collective and a real fierce champion of sustainable economic development, workers' rights, and environmental justice. Um, in the Inland Empire. So when we think about transportation policy, we typically think about moving people, right? But um, the goods movement in California, particularly because we have these large ports in Los Angeles and, and Long Beach, um, are a big part of our transportation infrastructure. However, it's also caused um, 
inequitable land uses and the location of freight land uses in underserved, uh, marginalized communities. Is, is that accurate? And, and why does that happen? And what are the consequences of that? Yeah, sure. So um, it, it does happen. So when we think about how, when you go on Amazon and you order something, how does it get to you? Or how are the stores around you stocked? You, if you live in Southern California, especially in the region where I live in, in the Inland Empire, close to LA and Long Beach, not only do you have to worry about the stores in your neighborhood being stocked, but your region is also dependent, 40% of the country is also dependent on your region. Because LA and Long Beach are the largest port in the United States, they bring in about 40% of the nation's things. So when the nation, like, Parts of the country, if, when there was a congestion, part, other parts of the country were suffering because of how useful um, and dependent our system is to this region. And what that has created ha is um, a freights movement infrastructure that has completely transformed our neighborhoods. Um, you, I'm, it's really common to hear about how uh, freeways are built in communities of color, right? We've heard a, about some very historic cases about that in Los Angeles and other parts of the country. But what we don't see is this other infrastructure like rail yards and railroads and freeways expanding and warehouses, right? All of these are components of our goods movement that make it possible for you to get something on Amazon. Without it, you probably wouldn't, at least right now. Um, and what they're doing is they're putting them in places where they know a lot of people might not resist it coming in. Um, and so that's how People's Collective got started because we're all people that live in the region of the Inland Empire that are seeing our communities being transformed. What should have been a housing project, what should have been a park, what should have been just open land is now the place of a warehouse, sometimes millions of square feet that attract about anywhere from like a thousand trucks a day to that one facility, those big rig trucks. Um, and we're seeing that not only in the Inland Empire, but we're seeing that a lot of inland California. How many people drive on the freeways and see giant big rigs, right? They're huge, right? And it's a very inefficient way of, of moving things as of right now. And the worst part is that they use diesel still, right? We're talking about climate change, transportation emissions being one of the largest contributors to climate change in the United States. If we're going to tackle climate change, you start with transportation, at least in our communities. Um, and specifically in our communities where we're seeing a lot of the goods movement infrastructure grow, we need to see less and less diesel trucks in our communities and a different way of moving goods that is more sustainable. Um, my uh, organization did a research project with students at the University of Redlands about a year ago uh, where we took a bunch of demographic um, statistics and we also uh, located all of the warehouses, the 3,000 warehouses in the region the ones that were going to be under review. And we found that 80% of them are in communities of color and that there's over 600 schools that are half a mile from a warehouse. Um, and what that looks like is, you know, you walking to school and you have a giant big rig going by. That looks like you not being able to open your windows when it's really hot outside because you have a lot of soot coming in from trucks. And when we think about the future of California, I know that we don't want anyone else to be feeling that. We want to eliminate it in our communities and make sure that this type of practice isn't being continued as we grow our goods movement. Because everybody here, especially with the pandemic, started to rely more on delivery services, right? 
We all started shopping more online. We all started relying on, on picking things up outside of the store or having someone deliver it. And in a way, it's actually really convenient and accessible, especially for our folks that are maybe in the disability community, right? Um, so how do we get the pros of this change without the burden of it? Um, and so, and, and one of the things that's really astounding to me is that um, the, the biggest consumers that shop online and order on Amazon are the people that live the farthest from these facilities, that live the farthest, the coastal communities um, and the communities that live farthest from you know, giant freight infrastructure are likely the ones that feel it the least. So as we move forward and thinking about how the goods movement is gonna grow, it's like how do we share more of the burden or we start eliminating that burden so it doesn't exist at all. Great, thank you. Alyssa, our Director of Sustainability and Mobility Department. Those are two departments that got combined recently, right? That, yes, that's yeah. correct, yeah. Um, so I want to bring this a little bit closer to home and ask about the city of San Diego, home to 1.4 million people, the second largest city in, the, in California, supposedly one of the most unaffordable places to buy a home now, is, was the headline. Um, and... Um, this also says that we're a thriving economy, right? People want to live here. So how is San Diego different or not from the rest of the state in terms of our transportation, mobility, and, and sustainability? And can you help us understand the important relationship between transportation and climate change, something that your department works a lot on? Yeah, thank you. And my thank you so much for having me here today in Karthik. So great to, to meet you and, and to hear the research that is being done and um, working with students like all of you. So thank you for having me here today. Um, the city of San Diego, is, it, it is unique in that we are a binational city. Um, our mobility is um, in large part, it, it transcends the borders. You know, uh, Hassan mentioned 4 million people will within the region, the city of San Diego is 1.4 million people. So we're a big piece of this. We have the universities within our jurisdiction. Um, and while we're binational, we are even more different from a lot of those other cities in that I think there are a lot of people that are green-minded, sustainably-minded, that are looking for increased mobility options um, and it's not an all or nothing. You don't have to take transit with every single trip. You don't have to get on a bike for every single ride that you make to go to the store or take your kids or go pick up your dog from the, the dog wash. Um, it can be about every single decision you make on, the, on a daily basis, and that is important from a sustainability perspective. We also don't have the rail system that places like San Francisco have. Um, so we're, we're hungry for it, but we don't quite have it yet. So the, the, the one thing that we often talk about is land use policy is climate policy. Mobility policy is climate policy. Um, that is why when we at the city of San Diego looked at sustainability and mobility, and mobility is not the Department of Transportation. We're not the, the folks with the hard hats out there. Um, I have uh, ADA accessibility, as Andrea mentioned, um, scooters and curb space. So I saw a lot of scooter riders on the campus, so it was very exciting, and long range and policy. Um, and those are kind of the pieces of mobility that were scattered around the city that were a little bit more fragmented. So we pulled those together, and then in the next year, we put that with sustainability. And why? 
because we have to take more action here. We have lots of policy. Hassan and his team have really led the way from a regional perspective, and it will have to be a regional perspective. But to take action, that's what we need to do. And so building the momentum off our climate action plan. Um, in 2015, we adopted the first one. It is a great tool for the city for streamlining of projects and development, um, of planning. And we're proposing, we've proposed a new one. If you're interested, please go onto our website. We have a goal of net zero by 2035 for the city. That's going to take all of us making changes and decisions in our daily habits, but also finding opportunities for those that can't make that decision, those that need to have programs or assistance with the transition to a lower carbon life. Um, and that can start with uh, mobility and increasing those mobility options. Thank you. Larry, hi. <laughs> Larry's a professor of urban studies and planning in my home department. Um, and he's also the foremost expert in walkability. So if you've ever seen the walk score on websites, on, on Zillow or Trulia, that, you can thank Larry for that. Um, it's a metric used really to, de to describe the walkable, the walkability of the address that you're located in. Um, and Larry works a lot on the relationship between transportation and health. So um, I know that uh, how we move and travel in our daily lives has an impact on our health outcomes. And I'm wondering if you can talk about the new frontiers of of um, knowledge in this relationship between mobility and health. Like what's, what's been effective in actually making us healthier and promoting health equity? Thank you, Mai. Really appreciate the opportunity to be here today. Um, this is a very interesting panel. I think we're covering a lot of important ground. Karthik, I'm very interested in learning more about the work you're doing uh, statewide. Climate change and health are two sides of the same coin. No doubt about it. What gets measured gets done, more so. At least it can be tracked. I think we need to put our dollars behind metrics and performance-based funding. This is something that was actually written into, I think, one of the earlier transportation federal bills like 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and politically was seen as impossible, too difficult to do. It's too important to not do. We can't we need to know where we're heading, where the dollars land on the ground, the effectiveness. And we have the data. It's, it's easy, relatively speaking, compared to how it used to be to actually track if we're actually improving the health impacts, the health characteristics in communities. This is, we've got enough, 30 years now we've been studying, myself and others, third of a century, looking at what's been effective and where it's been effective and how investing in active transportation infrastructure and transit, they go hand in hand. You, building a rail line without the dollars on the ground to make the station areas uh, really you know, work, now the city has to work so hard to get the resources to actually put the dollars on the ground in the station areas along the Blue Line trolley. That should be part of the transit investment. Those modes go together. They are part of the same system that needs, that's why the car is so competitive. In order to compete against the car, we need local accessibility through active transportation, the land use planning to make it work, and the regional infrastructure dollars to make regional accessibility and local accessibility part of the same solution. So in our minds, when we think about the expansion of the Blue Line trolley further north or wherever our next investments, wherever that's going to be, 
we know in, our, we, in the public come to understand that that is part of the package deal. So again, what gets measured gets done or can. Um, I think monetizing, and this is something actually Hassan hired me years ago. Now we're finally going to write it up and put it on record. About four or five years ago when Hassan previously at SCAG, um, you know, put into place the bond, which of course so important now is that we get the vote for the fa in the fall so that we can build the plan that, he, that you and others have developed at Sandag that, that's so needed for this region to provide the dollars. And the way that, you know, monetizing the health impacts, the, the health care cost savings alone are quite significant. When you look at, in Los Angeles, if you have a 2% reduction in type 2 diabetes, that's 400,000 less diabetes cases alone. It's a very small percentage population-wide gives you an enormous effect. Diabetes is expensive. So is heart disease. So is depression. Uh, all those things add up. And meanwhile, you're reducing GHG impacts while you're investing in these modes. So monetizing these modes is huge. And finally, I'll say that, that the workforce productivity benefits that come from a healthier workforce because people are m getting people to be more active and less sedentary is huge. So when you put the dollars together, we found an $8.41 payback for every buck spent on active transportation, uh, working with AECOM and other experts, and that is generalizable to San Diego, if not even more so here. One of the questions I'll, I'll, I'll tee up, and this is something I, you know, I, you never know when you hear, read someone's name in the news if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but I think this is part of you causing good trouble, Hassan, right, in terms of VMT and finding different, I mean, especially as we're starting to move towards electric vehicles. I have an electric car. I, I am not feeling the pinch of high gas prices right now, nor do I pay gas taxes. But I use the infrastructure. Um, I used it today to come down here. But right now, we know that that's where we need to go. And increasingly, when we have a mix of electric vehicles, that that's where we need to be. But how do we go from the status quo to where we need to be when, in the short term, there are people running for office who can make political hay from, from getting people to focus on the costs that may be more immediate, whereas the benefits may be farther out? So uh, this is, uh, you know, I was just telling Karthik in the beginning, I made the New York Times because of that issue, and uh, I didn't get a lot of compliments from a lot of my board members uh, for talking nationally about how important is it to price the system. And my message, my uh, message to, LA, to, to New York Times was uh, bad pricing kills good planning. I don't care how good the plan is, if you don't price the system right, it's not going to work. Now, with, when gas prices today at $6, it's not popular to talk about charges. But there is no way around a future with user, uh, people pay per use. So if you use the, the, the infrastructure for five miles, you pay equivalent to five miles of that use. Right now, he's paying nothing to almost nothing. He pays about $100 a year in registration because he drives electric cars. So is my daughter. And, and that's not fair. Very soon, we're going to have a totally clean fleet in California. And when I say soon, in a couple of decades, I mean, the California executive order said by 2035, all new cars sold in California has to be electric. 
So if we don't collect gas tax, we won't not only not maintain the roadway, but we can't pay for for subsidizing the, the trolley system, the active transportation that Larry alluded to. So something has to be has to change. This is the least um, acceptable political thing to do: is talk about taxes and charges. How do we do it? By being brave enough to even at least discuss it, have a public policy debate about it. The last two years we've been developing the plan. The most uh, issue that got attention is exactly that. But we didn't shy away from it. We went ahead and, and we took the, the heat. I believe very strongly that the more public policy debate, even though we don't have to all agree, the more this is going to be a reality. Number two, I think they're going to come a time when the, the, the funds for in, in the highway system is going to run out. There's not going to be money there. And when people start saying, fund this and fund that, and there is no money, this is going to create even further debate. Uh, again, it's not the uh, very popular, I mean, not the ideal year to talk about it because of the gas prices. But honestly, especially um, in academia, you mentioned Brian Taylor, an amazing man. They've been talking about this for a while, and they got into trouble too many times because, you know, it's a public, it's a public entity, UCLA and others. But I think the fact that they're willing to talk about it is, is we're, we're much further into understanding why we need an alternative form of uh, collection, uh, collecting uh, gas um, in revenues. Uh, California right now, I, I don't know whether you know this, California have uh, an, uh, a pilot, 5,000 households having uh, a pilot to, to collect VMT instead of gas tax. Uh, that pilot is going to come back. We're going to learn more about it. And the idea is by 2030 to implement a statewide vehicle mile travel collection. Nobody's talking about this right now because politically it's not popular. But at one point, I think logic is going to take over. I'm, I'm very optimistic. It's not easy. It's never going to be easy. But at least we're starting to talk about it in different parts of the, of the region. Quick thing I'll ask, just in this notion of kind of short-term versus long-term for all the other speakers, just how do, in your work, try to navigate, you know, trying to ensure that we are able to hit those long-term targets and just bring everyone along the way to, to get there on that journey? Yeah, maybe I'll, um, I'll jump in here. I, the, the other side of that coin is about helping those who cannot purchase electric vehicles to be able to purchase electric vehicles. Um, because we will leave those folks behind, and they will hold the burden um, at the end of the day. So we at the City of San Diego are working through a zero-emissions vehicle strategy. We work with SANDAG, the county, um, SDG&E, on a comprehensive regional uh, opportunity to electrify some meaning putting chargers in places of public spaces so that um, folks that live in apartments or condos where you can't just go and purchase your own charger and know that you're going to have charging daily, um, have those available to folks. Um, it, you know, it's also about doing the small first policies, those incentive-based policies first. Uh, I've had a lot of conversations with folks overseas where there are um, opportunities to um, do more of the, the fee management um, and to hear from them, their stories are, you know, first we had incentives, 
and then we were we had enough mobility options and equity space to then transition. So let's look at how do we incentivize people? How do we have people opt in to programs to be mindful whenever they get into their car of how far they have to drive? I'm a big fan of trip chaining. So if you had to go and um, go to the market, you were gonna go and go to dinner and you needed to go to school. Um, how do you bundle those trips together to just reduce even a couple miles? How do you do that? Those are those small steps that we can take um, that can start to shift our way of thinking on a daily basis. And so those small things, the policies, policies around parking reform and not requiring that housing have two parking spaces, one for each bedroom. Maybe it's that you're right next to transit and you can build a, a low-cost affordable housing and affordable with just affordable to all of us um, in the room um, that doesn't need to rely on a car. Um, and then setting up also working with programs for those options to grab a scooter. You can grab a car for the weekend if you're gonna go skiing or you're gonna go up the coast to LA, um, you know, whatever it is. So thinking differently about how we move around because it doesn't need to be taking away anything from people. It can be about increasing the options. I'd like to add, um, does this work? Okay, yeah. Um, the, uh, We've seen uh, scenario planning tools where you're able to visualize uh, through data, real um, images uh, bring to life through design, actually, through the vi able to show different configurations of a way a transit station area, a neighborhood, or even at the regional level. Uh, I know that Sandag's used uh, scenario planning tools extensively, but this helps decision makers see, even though it may be it takes time to have the impacts realized on the ground, uh, it brings the impact viscerally to them right now and actually within community groups who do not understand that densification around transit uh, it actually will help their neighborhood, they're, they're resistant to it, they don't want to have it happen. These tools can really help shape opinion and it's essential that we start to use them more effectively. Just to add a little bit about the fees and taxes on people for driving and stuff like that. Um, I. I, I see both sides, right? I mean, as, as somebody that's really worried about climate change, I, I know that people need to drive less, but I also live in a community where we have very little options other than driving. So on top of really high gas to then think about another tax is, is really daunting. But at the same time, I'm very aware that the infrastructure in my community is not good, right? That we have potholes everywhere, that there's always some type of construction on the freeways. And I constantly ask myself, like, where is, why isn't that money coming in into these communities, right? And so it's like, I think as we go into the future, I think it's important for us to figure out that communities do not get left behind and that we are subsidizing lower income communities and that we are assessing it so that taxing is done equitably, right? If you have more, right? And, and specifically around companies, right? And, and I'll, I'll have to shift over to my, like, goods movement, like supply chain side for a second. You know, we're talking about trillion dollar companies sometimes. You've got the Amazons, the Walmarts, the Targets, all of these big companies are here in California. And they've got a lot of their businesses here in California. And a lot of them get incentives to come here and don't have to pay a lot into the community they're in, right? They get, they get written off for it. And then we get left with the potholes on the road and we get left with bad infrastructure. And then we wonder, well, why aren't they putting in their half as well? And, and just to show an example, right, and, and I do think taxing is really important. I just think it needs to be done equitably. If the community is going to do it, then I also expect the businesses in our community to also be done, doing it and 
and doing it equitably. Um, we've had the industry fight us so hard on a container fee at the ports of LA and Long Beach. Like lobby it, the, the heck out of it, right? Like they did not want to even spend $10 on a container. You guys seen those giant ships at the ports, right? They have, you know, hundreds of containers on them and all of those are bringing stuff onto trucks and going on inter communities. They don't even want to pay $10 for a container. And those fees would be going into getting electric trucks so that we don't have to have diesel trucks in our community. That's a fun for them. If anything, it's like they're investing in something they're going to benefit in the future, but they fight it tooth and nail. And I think those are the kind of pushbacks that we really need to get really serious about because all of us need to be paying into it equally, right? And so, um, you know, our, our groups are lobbying for, for them to obviously get have a higher fee, um, but that's, I think, the type of um, direction we need to go in is that all, all people in our communities paying an equal share into our infrastructure and into zero emissions. I, I meant to say this before. I recently was presenting results of a major scenario planning exercise in Las Vegas to the Regional Transportation Commission. And the reaction was anything that you can do through transportation, uh, through health, uh, through transportation that helps us on the health side. There is so much pressure on elected officials right now because of the pandemic, and people right now more than ever get this connection in their mind between their community that that is right now very, very important in the minds. If that is generalizable, what I saw, it, there's such pressure to show structural, re meaningful response to the health crisis. Transportation can help health. People don't put that together in their minds currently. How do we reimagine not only what citizenship is, but also what expertise is? And I wanted to like really give a shout out to Andrea and what, what PC for EJ and other community organizations are doing. How many people have heard about the indirect source rule? That this is something that you could say is an innovation. So if you look at air regulation in California, the California Air Resources Board has authority to regulate mobile sources of pollution but the South Coast AQMD has jurisdiction when it comes to stationary sources of pollution. But when it comes to warehouses, you have trucks that idle either while they're on the dock or in the vicinity of these warehouses and for most intents and purposes, stationary while they're doing it. So Andrea and others were part of community organizations that were not only part of the kind of comment surrounding that, but really the expertise that informed what was happening in these warehouses that looked like stationary sources of pollution, but, were, but have trucks that are mobile as well. And that's, some, that's a fight that's still happening right now, but it is so consequential. The fight that's happening is that the AQMD has adopted this rule, but it is being challenged in court because of these very profitable enterprises that are unwilling to pay a tax or a fee for the impacts that they're causing on their community. So that's just something I would encourage you, if you haven't heard about the indirect source rule, to learn more about it, but really to see that expertise is, of course, not only people like Larry who helped author that, right, or at least the basis of some of that, but also community organizations that are feeling the brunt of this and are not just either victims or passive bystanders in terms of what's happening but are playing an active role in the solutions of tomorrow. Okay, we have time for a couple questions. Perception is such a powerful force 
in transportation planning. How do we get Americans to stop their love affair with a car? What are some of the things we can do to really convince people? Larry was talking about how communities don't like density, even when it's good for them. Thank you for the question. I'll start. You're right about perception, right? Perception sometimes drives a lot of things. Facts are, are, are a victim to it. But I think there is a sense that if we educate enough uh, um, that we can make headways with even uh, our people here in, in this country who is attached to the car. It's a car culture, no question. We contributed to it. We keep funding billions of dollars. But I'll give you a couple of examples. Thanks to the leadership of this lady who is going to talk to you shortly, Supervisor Nora Vargas, starting Friday... All 18 years and younger in San Diego can ride transit anywhere in San Diego County free. Right? Now, we're going to extend that to include you, many of you, 24 and younger if she gets me the money, right? But, but the point here is... <laughs> the point here is we do need to start changing in a practical way the way we think about things. Larry talked about, you know, if we could relate health to cost. But if I, I, if I could make an argument that if I include health costs in driving, the subsidy, making transit free is a very small subsidy. So it's an education part to overcome this perception that you're talking about. And finally, uh, I am a firm believer, like Carthrick said, this is, he's leading a commission called California 100. So what's in the next century is going to happen? We are not sustainable for the next not only 100 years, for the next 50, if we continue to think we're a cult culture and, and that's that. We need to look at multimodal solutions, changing density, and going to pricing, which is politically not popular. Um, real quickly, uh, it's a really good question because I live in a semi-rural, rural community. A lot of it's suburban, and a lot of it is still old farm ground. So a lot of people still have lots big plots of land where they have their goats and their chickens and their horses and it's a really big cultural thing that people do not want to let go of because they have land and they want to do that um so it's like i I think it's really important though because we do have to go into this direction i don't think it's black and white i think it's like how do we keep the elements of what they like in their community still there and still available while adding the options of like more transit or more housing or cooperative spaces where they can where people can still enjoy things like farm life and open mountains and equestrian parks and things like that like i i think it's harmful when we start talking about like taking away things to put in infill or something like that people get really scared about it they don't like it they they think about the traffic that it brings because we don't have the transit system to be able to sub to you know balance that out so for at least if you're coming to the Illinois empire with that let's just tell people they're going to be able to keep their horses and we're adding a train or something like that one thing i love about the design lab is how many of you come from different backgrounds and are going towards different futures and how that comes together the solutions are like an ecosystem it's like a web and we're not going to solve it on a straight line it's not a Rube Goldberg you know you can't just set the ball in motion and it will eventually solve it Um, it is about how do we create the ecosystem for aging and for families and for living and for the healthy lifestyle and then from there how do we support um, the, the 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 individuals who don't have the means 
to make those decisions. And, and again, I keep coming back to that because many of us will come from a place that has um, access or privilege or ability, if you're thinking about disabilities, and we need to think more holistically about all of the other folks that your neighbors and your coworkers and peers. Thank you. Um, we are really thrilled today to have San Diego Supervisor Nora Vargas here to join us and provide closing comments. And I just wanted to introduce her just a little bit. Supervisor Nargis Vargas is a first-generation immigrant, the first Latina, and first woman of color to serve as a county supervisor in the 171-year history of the county of San Diego. And um, she is a statewide leader on all sorts of issues related to immigration, health care, but for the purposes of our discussion today, she is the chair of Sandag's Transportation Committee. So please join me in welcoming Supervisor Nora Vargas to the stage. Thank you. Good afternoon, buenas tardes. And just to clarify, it's 172 years now, because uh, that was from last year, so it's 172 years. Uh, and I like to make that point because I think it makes a difference, right, because representation matters. Um, so I had a whole speech that I was going to give you, but it, I think it's like, forget about it. We're just going to have a conversation. And uh, I want to say first thank you to Jesse for inviting me. For He's a very, very good friend of mine. We've worked together for many, many years. Um, you had a wonderful panel today uh, with great conversation and the great work that all of you are doing. And so, um, you know, I want to just put into context uh, the work that we're doing in San Diego County. I have the honor and privilege, as it was mentioned, uh, to be the first um, Latina on the board and the first woman of color. And I, as a result, I get to serve as chair of transportation uh, for SANDAG. And in uh, less than a year and three months, right, um, so for those of you that may or may not know, the composition of the Board of Supervisors has changed in a very short amount of time. And the reason why I'm sharing this with you is because um, I always think about what does this mean for you as students, as leaders in your communities, and the work that you're doing on, on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, it matters because the policymakers that are representing you matter, and those are the ones in the end that are going to be making the decisions based on um, your, with your influence and your input um, as to where we're heading uh, as communities and as a state and and um, at the national level as well, and so it matters, right? And um, I say that to you because things have shifted in the county of San Diego in a very short amount of time, in less than a year and three months. We've been able to, you know, it was unheard of to be able to have an equity statement at Sandak, for instance, uh, where we really put the value of our, our frontline communities front and center. And I can tell you that folks, for instance, like um, Rosa, wave Rosa, Rosa, who's my staff member here, uh, we were actually having a conversation. She does all of my transportation work um, we were actually having a conversation. I met Rosa, we actually didn't know each other, but I met Rosa when she was 13 years old. 13, Rosa? And uh, we were at the same location. I was a staff member for a local member of Congress, and uh, I think at the time, and she was speaking for um, uh, when uh, uh, Michelle Obama came down, remember, when she was talking about gardens and all this wonderful stuff, when she was the first lady. And she was advocating for transportation in her community, right? She went away, graduated from college, came back. She's my team member. Uh, she's, she had been advocating for free transportation for students for that long. She's my team member. And, and um, as part of my, my team, one of the things that we fought for was free transportation for students. But if it wasn't for um, the advocacy work that had been done for on, uh, in our communities for years by these advocates, 
in partnership with, you know, a, someone like Hassan, who's a visionary, right, with not only the big five, big five moves, but understanding the power of community, what, what equity meant uh, in terms of not only transportation long-term, but short-term, we have to make sure that we start ensuring that our young people understand that being able to have access to public transportation was key for us to be able to transform what, what um, access to, to transportation is going to look like in the future. We had to do something now. Everything had to move, to be, be, you know, come together in order for us to be able to do that now. And so all of this has sort of, I say to folks, right, there's some synergy that has happened, and that's why we're here right now. But that's, it actually is decades of work uh, that has taken place between advocates, you know, uh, policymakers, and leadership in an institution, all of us deciding that this was a priority for us. And so this is a perfect example of things coming together and moving forward. Um, and, and again, uh, a perfect example of how representation matters is not just a hashtag, but it's something that it actually can make a difference in our communities uh, day in and day out. And so in San Diego, I think we're being very intentional. Um, it's not all peaches, right? There's still a lot of uh, tension uh, in what's happening, and depending on where you are um, in the county of San Diego, and sometimes by one or two votes, things may not happen uh, on our committees because there's still some folks who don't think, you know, they still think that uh, expanding freeways is the way to go, yet we're still trying to figure out how, you know, when we know the data says that that's not how we're going to meet our climate goals, right, and, and that we still have to figure out as we're thinking about the blue line and we're thinking about how we're going to connect our communities we still need to figure out if we're going to make everything electrical and, and how are we going to play for these things. We still have to have the tough conversations about what does that look like for the communities of people like who live in my district, right? District 1 is in the southern portion of, of the county of San Diego where the majority of the folks are the frontline communities who can't afford to buy the, the vehicles, the electric vehicles, who can't afford, they want to, they want to have all those cars, but they can't afford them. And even if you give them a stipend for 5,000 bucks, that doesn't mean anything to them, right? The insurance, everything else that comes with it. And so part of my job and my responsibility as a policymaker is to be looking at all the different factors. Yes, I want to reach the climate goals, but I want to make sure that I'm always thinking about it from an equity lens, from an environmental justice perspective. And so I have the privilege and, and the opportunity to be able to do that work because not only am I a vice chair of the board, but then I also get to serve chair of SANDAG. And then the governor just appointed me to be the representative CARB, the California uh, Air Resources Board. And then I also get to be the chair of the Air Pollution Control District. And yes, I don't sleep. Who cares? Nobody needs to sleep. When you're doing, you know, really good work on behalf of the community, you only need to sleep a couple hours. So, um, but in, in all, um, in all uh, honesty, it's it's really important, wonderful work that is happening from a government side. But it's not work that I'm doing alone. It's work that is happening in conjunction and in partnership with community because. The work that I do every day can only happen if we do it in partnership with community. I do a lot of community town halls, um, a lot of par participatory work with organizations like Environmental Health Coalition, a lot of work with organizations like Mid-City Can, a lot of work with organizations that are on the ground that are saying to me, this is what we need, right? We just created a, uh, we, uh, I'm part of the 
co-chair of the decarbonization plan um, at the County of San Diego. We're creating a roadmap of what does that look like and really thinking about what is the intersection between transportation and climate, you know, and our climate goals. For the first time, right, in the County of San Diego, we were able to bring together SANDAG, the transportation institution, and the Air Pollution Control District. And we came together and had a conversation about how do we have a conversation about social equity and where's the intersection and how are we going to meet our goals? I mean, that is not genius. It's not. It really is how we all should be talking to each other. It's the synergy that we all should be you know, figuring out on how we work together. And so I, for me, I think being able to be here today and to uh, sort of close this out is just to be more of a reminder to you that government really should work for all of us and not for some of us, right? And I think the work that all of you are doing with the design lab and being, um, having an opportunity to be innovative and to really challenge us as government entities and uh, to be the folks who are, that are saying to us, eh, actually, you should be doing it this way, or mm, you're actually headed in the wrong direction, or are you doing a great job? Sometimes we do a great job. Um, is really exactly the direction that we should be headed in. And, and I think that the only way we're going to be able to move forward and be able to meet our climate goals, to be able to make sure that we um, shift the culture of making sure that people get out of our cars and into public transportation in this country and in this state and in this community, is to make sure that we bring together academia, philanthropists, uh, you know, uh, public-private partnerships within, um, you know, incentives, right, for our communities, and then also to make sure that we are always putting our frontline communities at the front, front and center. So I'm excited about the future. I'm excited about the great work that is to come, and I do believe that our, our especially our students and our youth, they're not our future, they're our present, and that's why we must continue to do the work that we're doing now. You have to be part of the solution. And, um, and I think the future is bright, and I'm so excited to be here. And thank you for the great work that you do every day on behalf of our communities. I'm looking forward to great innovative work that we can implement as we're moving forward. Uh, so thank you for having me. Wonderful. Yes, thank you. Thank you all for the gift of sharing your wisdom and your time with us. Um, this was such a, a wonderful uh, experience for the, our kickoff event. Um, so uh, stick around and we will hang out. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.